<clears throat> Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy. Chapter 1. I will actually begin with verse 1 to remind you of the context, but our text for today is verses 8 through 11 of the first chapter of 1 Timothy. This is the word of the Lord. It contains everything that you and I need for life and godliness. Um, It is God's authoritative um, words to us, for he is the ultimate author of this Bible that I hold and that you hold. So listen reverently to God's word as he speaks. 1 Timothy 1. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Amen. Pray with me. O Lord, we thank you that you are a gracious God and a speaking God, that you have spoken the gracious words that are found in your throughout your scriptures, uh, and that we are beneficiaries of your willingness to be gracious and to tell us where that grace is found, namely in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would be our prophet this morning. Would you speak to us afresh through your servant? Would you speak to us clearly, powerfully? Uh, Would you please humble us? Would you please encourage us, instruct us, help us? with whatever we need help with, Lord. All of us are in need. We're a needy people. Would you please use your word to feed our souls that we might better serve you. We ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Kids? Where are all my kids? Okay. There we are. Um, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever used uh, something, let's say a tool, uh, maybe you've borrowed your mom's tools in the kitchen or your dad's tools in the toolbox or something, or maybe it wasn't a tool, but have you ever used something in a way that it wasn't meant to be used? Have you ever used something in a way that it wasn't meant to be used? Perhaps, for example, you might have taken a toy, let's just say a, a, I don't know, a, a toy car or a truck, and thrown it at something that was too high for you to reach in order to get it off the shelf or the kitchen table or the refrigerator and didn't have too much success doing it. Toys aren't meant to retrieve objects from high places, are they? They're not, no. Um, Perhaps you've tried to do that. I don't know. There might be somebody who's tried to do that. can't imagine. Well, on a couple of occasions in my life, uh, I have tried to use something that... um, it wasn't designed to be used for and uh, to get something done. I'll give you an example. Uh, what I'm thinking of is I, on more than one occasion, tried to use a rock to try to hammer a nail into wood. I don't know if anybody else has tried to pull that stunt. Yeah. Um, not once did that ever go well. Not once did that nail ever nail straight into the wood. Now, I might have, you know, bent it and then had to bend it back with the rock, and I, I can't remember if all the cases I... There weren't too many cases, because I know how, how unwise that is. But I have tried on a few times to nail uh, nails into wood with, with a rock because I didn't have a hammer present, which is what I really needed, but didn't have. Anyway, it doesn't work well when you have something that is designed to do one thing and you try to use it for something else. Usually it goes poorly. Well, this passage is about, I don't want to call it a tool, but it's about something that is designed to be used in certain ways and people want to use it in the wrong way. Specifically, some people that Paul is criticizing in Ephesus where Mr. Timothy is the pastor. And the thing I'm talking about is God's law. God's law. There are certain uses that are appropriate that God designed the law to accomplish, things that he wanted it to do. And it does what it's supposed to do very, very effectively. But when you don't use the law properly, it does bad things. Actually, people do bad things with the law of God. The law is good, as we'll see in this passage. So listen as I unpack this passage for you and for the adults as well. Again, this passage, uh, this uh, letter, rather, epistle, as fancy word for letter, was written by the Apostle Paul to his protege, Timothy, a fellow co-worker of his. And it was written to instruct Timothy concerning Timothy's duties as a pastor in the city of Ephesus and in around Ephesus to the Christians there. Now, there were false teachers in and around Ephesus, as I read in the first uh, seven verses of this chapter, you heard that. There were false teachers uh, in and around uh, Ephesus who were using the law of Moses, the first five books, the Pentateuch, the Torah, again, all, all words for the same thing, first five books of our Bible. They were trying to use that law to defend 
speculative ideas that they themselves wanted to push. And they were ideas apparently related to genealogies, probably biblical genealogies, where they, where they were filling in the blanks, as it were, and speculating about things that weren't said in those genealogies. They were using the scriptures to defend these speculative ideas about genealogies and other obscure topics, which Paul dismisses as myths uh, in, in the first part of the chapter there that I read to you. False teachers doing this. And Paul's point in this section of these verses 8 through 11 uh, of chapter 1, Paul's point here um, is that God didn't give the law to humanity in order to provide inspiration for such useless speculations. Rather, Paul says, the law was given to fulfill a much more important and weightier task, which, by the way, isn't the only task of the law, but it's the one that Paul mentions, which is my third point. And we'll get to that uh, in a moment. Actually, we'll get to it right now. Uh, But there are other uses for the law besides the one that Paul mentions, but uh, Paul focuses on one in particular. So, the points. First point that we learn from this passage. God's law is good if we use it lawfully. Secondly, God's law is not to be used by the righteous as a jumping-off point for speculative musings. And then finally, God's law is to be used by the unrighteous to alert them regarding their specific sins. First, God's law is good if we use it usefully. I get this from, obviously, verse 8, a virtual clone of what I just said. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The law, to which Paul is specifically referring to here, uh, is the law of Moses, contained in the first five books of our Old Testament. The false teachers, uh, who are his... uh, Opponents that he is talking to Timothy about, or writing to Timothy about, and whom Paul, the apostle is railing against in this letter, were almost certainly, I think it's fair to say, it's, we can be certain, that they were raised as Jews. They were raised in Judaism, and this is true because, uh, quite obvious from their obvious fondness of the Mosaic Law that they exhibited. And so, almost undoubtedly, they were they were Jews themselves, raised in a Jewish family, um, and uh, uh, and were fond of the Mosaic Law. Now, the five books of Moses, the Torah, the Pentateuch, contain three different types of legislation. And some of you have heard this before, but I'm going to reiterate it because it bears bears on uh, uh, kind of what I'm going to say here in, in subsequent uh, moments. So there are three different types of laws contained in the in the first five books, indeed throughout the scriptures, but particularly in the first five books of the Old Testament. There are ceremonial laws, which require required certain worship-type rituals, which pointed the Old Testament Jews to the then-future Messiah and his work in some way. Uh, ceremonial laws. Then there were a second type of law called judicial, often called judicial or civil laws, which were laws which God gave to Israel as a nation state for their governance and for the punishment of evildoers in the nation of Israel. 
And the third type of laws, in addition to ceremonial and judicial, are moral laws. Moral laws are laws which identify what is right and what is wrong. Um, And those laws, moral laws, are derived from God's own moral character and actions. Um, Now, I say this because ceremonial laws found in the Old Testament and in the uh, Pentateuch in particular ceased to be binding upon believers once Jesus arrived on the scene and completed his work of redemption on our behalf. Uh, There's New Testament evidence that those laws were done away with, that they were no longer applicable. The the dietary laws, the sacrificial laws, um, the observance of special feast days, all those things and others like them were done away with by God through the New Testament uh, legislation as it was given by the apostles. So ceremonial law in the Old Testament, while it's instructive to us, we don't have to obey it anymore. It doesn't apply to us in that way anymore. Likewise, judicial laws found in the law of Moses, those laws ceased to be applicable when Israel, to whom they were given, ceased to be a nation. Now there's still general equity which applies. Uh, uh, Adulterers are no longer, uh, unrepentant adulterers are no longer they're no longer put to death by stoning, they're excommunicated. Um, and we get that from what Paul said in the New Testament, and he specifically didn't call on the, on the magistrate to have them put to death, he called on the church to excommunicate them, uh, the, the man who was, uh, who was uh, in grave sin, sexual sin. But so judicial laws, they ceased to be applicable when Israel was dissolved as a nation. But moral laws found in the Old Testament, and particularly in the law of Moses, because that's what Paul is addressing here, as those are summarized in the Ten Commandments, and those remain in force throughout human history. They existed before Sinai in the hearts of people. They were given in the conscience. God wrote those on the law of the conscience. Uh, 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 Cain knew that he was in sin when he wanted to murder and did in fact murder his brother Abel. It was a sin. He knew it. Uh, He didn't have any tablet to tell him, thou shalt not murder. Uh, He knew it because God had written it and it applied to him at that point in time. Likewise, in the New Testament age, uh, all those those moral laws are binding throughout the ages, so they're still binding upon us as New Covenant believers. Um, until Jesus returns uh, in glory at the second coming. So, this is by way of background. Now, Paul says there in verse 8, he says, the law of God is good. And here, yes, he's referring to the Mosaic law in particular, but it's also pretty apparent that he's referring to the law of God in general. In all ages, the law of God, whatever applies to God's people, is good. So, for example, whether we're talking about the moral, judicial, and ceremonial elements of the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament period, for Jews, that was good for them. All those laws were good for them. But likewise, the moral law, which alone still is binding in the New Testament era, it is good for us as God's people to follow. It is good. The moral law is good because it is reflective of God's moral character, as I said already, and God himself is infinitely good. The moral law is good in its 
terms of its substance and in terms of its nature. And it is also good in terms of what results from it when it is heated. It is good in that sense as well. That's true in the New Testament age as much as it was in the Old Testament age. Sadly, many professing Christians today do not share this view of God's law. There are quite a number of people who call themselves Christians who believe God does not require Christians to keep uh, the law in the New Testament age. The fancy word for people that hold to this view are antinomian, is antinomian rather, which means against law. I spoke uh, a few months back with a professing Christian, professing is the right word there, and he holds, he held to this view, still holds to it, I'm sure, I haven't talked to him since, but uh, he said in effect, and I'm, 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 I'm rearranging his wording just a little bit here, but this is, this is in effect what he said to me uh, when I was having lunch with him one day. He said, the fact that God loves me and that Jesus died for me means there is no need for me to put away behaviors that are contrary to what God says in his word. Now, he didn't put it quite like that, but that's what he said, that's what he was saying to me. God loves me. Jesus died for me. I don't have to change. He loves me just the way I am, is what he was essentially saying. Yeah, I know. There are tons of church-going people who agree with them. And they're dead wrong. James says, whoever keeps the law, the whole law and stumbles in one point, is guilty of all. Over in... Wait, no, is that the, is that the verse I wanted? That's not the verse I wanted. That's, that's another good verse from James, but that's not the verse. James 4.4 4 is, uh, James says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of God, no, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And then over in John's letter, 1 John, he says this about Obedience, which is another word for law-keeping. And this is a very familiar text that many of you have heard a number of times from me, but it bears repeating. First John 2, verses 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him, meaning Christ, who he was just speaking of in the previous verses. If we keep his commandments, the one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But... Whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Folks, the true Christian will be someone who strives to obey God's law. Indeed, he must strive to obey God's law if he, in order for him or her to get into heaven. That might sound like strong language, but uh, the writer of the Hebrews says, pursue peace, uh, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. You've got to be sanctified. The Holy Spirit has to have done some sanctifying work in you or you won't see the Lord. It's necessary to keep the law. It's not what justifies us. It has nothing to do with our justification. But it must accompany us, as it were, to heaven. Or we're not going to get into heaven. 
So the law, it is intrinsic. So, but, and, so, so people are wrong who believe that view, uh, antinomian, that antinomian view. They're very, very wrong. It's dangerous, dangerous doctrine uh, promoted by many television preachers, sadly, and, and non-television preachers. But the law, as God gave it, it is intrinsically good because God wrote it. It's intrinsically good. But, but it only achieves the good outcomes that I spoke of a few moments ago when it is used in the manner in which God intended for it to be used. That it, when it's used lawfully, in other words. It must be used in the manner that God intended for it to be used. Remember, the false teachers whom the apostle writes of in this letter weren't using the law in this God-intended manner. They were mishandling it. They were abusing it. And their mishandling of the Mosaic law made it necessary for Paul to write this letter and to set forth the proper use, or at least one of the proper uses of the law of God. But before speaking of the law's proper use that Paul speaks of, uh, Paul first informs Timothy and others what the law is not intended for, which is my second point, which is this. So the first point, God's law is good if we use it, if we use it lawfully. Second point, God's law is not to be used by the righteous as a jumping off point for speculative musings. In other words, it's not to be used to serve as inspiration for such speculations. Verse 9 of our text. Realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. Now, this statement is crucial to understanding what's being said in this passage because uh, there have been people who have abused this passage. In fact, antinomians have abused this passage. What they will say is, they will say, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous man, in other words, it's not made for the justified man, it's not made for the Christian at all. It doesn't apply to the Christian at all. That is how... That's an antinomian and, and, uh, and wrong interpretation of those words right there. But that's how a lot of Christians today parse that. It's wrong. So let me tell you why here. Um, unlike his regular use of the word righteous to highlight a believer's justified status before God. That's the way Paul normally uses the word righteous. But unlike that regular use describing a person's justified status, a believer's justified status, here, on this occasion, Paul uses the term righteous in an ethical sense. Not in a legal sense, but in an ethical sense. And that's important. He's, he's using it to designate individuals who are living an upright life, more or less in conformity with the moral and ethical demands found in, God, found in God's law. Now, that would be the Christian, by the way. But the emphasis is not on his judicial status, 
but it's on his ethical behavior. Okay? And that, that bears on how you interpret this. So the point that Paul is making here is, oh, and let me, let me say one other thing too. Uh, the, the fact that that's what's going on here, that Paul is using this here in an ethical way, the word term righteous in verse 9, rather than a, in a forensic way uh, to describe his being justified before God, his, his status as a Christian, rather than his status as a law keeper. One of the evidences of that, the fact that it's the case, is evident from the fact that the term righteous in verse 9 comes just before a long list of immoral behaviors in the latter part of verse 9 and verse 10, behaviors which Paul contrasts with this, this term righteous. So, he's contra- righteous means moral here. Morally acting. As opposed to immorally acting. Which is, with which it's contrasted by him. That's how you know he's not talking about his, his, uh, his justification. The fact that, uh, as a Christian, the law doesn't apply to him, but he's, he's comparing ethical behaviors, one uh, moral, one immoral. Uh, the moral on the part of the Christian versus the immoral on the part of the, uh, those uh, who maybe profess to be Christians or who are definitely not Christians. Okay, hopefully you understood that. So anyway, the point that Paul is making here, here in this chapter, when he says the law is not made for the righteous man, but for the lawless and rebellious, is this. His point is not that the law of God doesn't apply to a justified person, a Christian, in any way at all. That's not the point. The antinomian interpretation is erroneous. What it means when he says the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and rebellious, is that the law was given by God for the purpose This is one of the purposes, not the only one, but the one he's talking about here, for the purpose of calling out immoral behavior on the part of habitual lawbreakers, regardless of what they call themselves, be they in the church or outside of the church. He's he's calling out immoral behavior on the part of uh, habitual lawbreakers, and and the law is to be used for that, not for the purpose of helping law keepers, relatively speaking, who relatively keep the law, not for the purpose of helping law keepers engage in speculative musings and disputes about genealogies and to engage in concocting religious myths, which is what these opponents in Ephesus were doing. They're misusing the law, Paul is saying. The law is to point out sin on the part of the lawless. It's not for this playing games like these these, uh, Jewish guys are doing. By the way, they weren't this... This isn't the same heresy that was going on in Galatia. I think I made that point last week. Uh, the Ju- this is not Judaizing. This is something different. A different uh, variation on uh, 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 erroneous Jewish teaching. In the Galatia, it was very definitely uh, Judaizing. Uh, you needed to obey, do certain things to get into heaven. Um, this is somewhat different than that. At any rate... It's to be used to call out immoral behavior, help people to see their law-breaking and and the danger of it, not for the purpose of speculative musings about genealogies and uh, creating different myths and ideas and that sort of thing. Remember, this creative but sinful speculation was exactly what these false teachers in Ephesus were wanting to use the Mosaic Law for, to facilitate their speculations. 
such fictitious embellishments, not embezzlements, embellishments, uh, of the scriptures is exactly what is found in much of the Apocrypha. Some of you have read portions of the Apocrypha. Bell and the Dragon is one of the books of the Apocrypha, for example. Um, now, there are things today that people wrongly use the Bible to speculate about. I'll give you a few examples. How many categories of angels there are in heaven? Uh, the number and names of the Magi who brought gifts to the baby Jesus. Whether Christ was ever married to Mary Magdalene. That's blasphemous. But people spe- speculate about that. What the mark of the beast will look like. If it will look like anything at all. These are all, it's all of this is speculative hogwash. And Paul is telling us here that it is definitely not what God intends for his word to be used for by you and me. Brings me to my third point. And that is this. God's law is to be used by the unrighteous, by the unrighteous, to alert them regarding their specific sins. I'm using here the term unrighteous to contrast with the righteous that I used in point two. Um, and I'm using the term unrighteous to designate those who are not striving to conform their life to God's law. In other words, who are habitually breaking the law, lawbreakers. Now, Paul, I use the term righteous in my point here. Uh, God's law is to be used by the un, uh, unrighteous. God's law is to be used by the unrighteous to alert them regarding their specific sins. But Paul uses two different terms. So look at, again at verse 9. You're gonna, in fact, you're going to need to keep your Bible open and look with me as we read through this, because um, I'm using the New American Standard, so some of your versions are going to be a little bit different in the wording than mine, if it's ESV, for example. But uh, you'll get the idea. So, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. That is a catch-all. Those are catch-all terms to describe lawbreakers. It's it's just uh, it's synonymous with my term unrighteous that I used in the uh, the point uh, the third point in my title of it. But Paul uses the word to say the same thing: lawless and rebellious to describe such people. Then, after using the terms lawless and rebellious, it's New American Standard terminology. I'm trying to remember what it is in some of the others, but uh, similar, I'm sure. I think it's lawless and disobedient. I believe in one of the other translations. Anyway, he then goes on to list specific sins which deliberately echo nine of the Ten Commandments set forth in the law. So I'm going to go through these quickly, but I want you... And, and by the way, there's, there is warrant for assuming this and believing this that are found in my commentaries that I don't have time and you, it would put you to sleep if I gave it to you here uh, in the sermon. But trust me... These correspond with the various commandments, and I'm going to tell them, I'm just going to tell you the main points. So, going back, uh, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, and after the, that, he says, for, now he's, he's specifying who these lawless and rebellious people are, for, and then he says, the ungodly and sinners. 
what the New American Standard translates the word there as ungodly. That term ungodly is almost certainly identifying the breakers, those who break the first commandment. The word sinners is likely designating breakers of the second commandment. The word, and then he says, uh, for the unholy. That word, uh, the New American Standards translates as unholy, is almost certainly a reference to ident- uh, uh, breakers of the third commandment. The word profane, you can hear, you hear the word profaning the Sabbath, which you read about in the Old Testament. That is a reference to breakers of the fourth commandment. Notice this is in the New Testament, folks. The fifth, uh, the fifth commandment is identified by those who, my translation says, kill, strike is a better word there, who strike their fathers or mothers. And, and, and I, and I say it's a better word, it's actually because it's in keeping with the pattern. Uh, the fifth commandment, you know, if you're not honoring your mother and father if you kill them. That's true. But this is speaking of something less than killing your mother and your dad. The killing part, murdering part, comes in the next commandment. So that's why I translate it, strike there, those who strike their fathers or mothers. And I got that with the help of one of my commentators that I'm relying on for this. Then for murderers, obvious what that is, right? That's the sixth commandment, breakers. It goes on, immoral men, in verse 10, uh, and homosexuals, that, that corresponding phrase there, they both together constitute or designate those who break the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Notice, homosexuality falls under the seventh commandment, as does every other sexual sin. Then, the, uh, and then he says, kidnappers, what's kidnapping? It's man stealing. That's the Eighth Commandment. That's a re- it's not the only way to break the Eighth Commandment, but it is very definitely a breach of the Eighth Commandment. He's identifying those who break the Eighth Commandment. And then the final one that he mentions is liars and perjurers. Obviously, thou shalt not bear false witness. Number nine, right? This is clearly an echoing of the Ten Command nine of the Ten Commandments. Now you say, what happened to the Tenth Commandment? It's not there. For some reason... That commandment uh, is not represented in Paul's list. I'm not sure why. But he does conclude that list, he says, after liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So that phrase there is undoubtedly meant to cover everything else that he hasn't mentioned, including, oh, by the way, coveting. See that? So Paul's point Remember, he started out, verse 9, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous man, meaning for a law keeper, generally speaking a law keeper, but those who are generally speaking lawbreakers. And he goes on to contrast it with the, the, all the, the law breaking of, uh, uh, echoed, echoing, by echoing the Ten Commandments. So Paul's point then is people who are lawless and rebellious in their behavior need heavy exposure to God's law. Contrary to the fluff that often passes for the gospel nowadays. They need heavy exposure to the specific demands of God's law so that they might be confronted with the fact that they are themselves lawbreakers with whom the lawgiver is exceedingly angry. And if God wills to be gracious to them, 
by giving life to their hitherto dead heart, they will then repent of their lawlessness and their rebellion and will place their trust in Jesus Christ alone to be their law keeper before the throne of God and to bear the judgment that they themselves deserve. If you're listening to me and you have never repented of your sins truly and fled to Jesus Christ alone in faith to make you right with God, to reconcile you to him and to um, and to turn aside God's anger and judgment that is directed at you, then you are on the road to hell. And you will get there, certainly, unless you repent and flee to Christ. God demands and requires that he see perfection upon anybody he, invite, he allows into heaven. And he has to see perfection when he looks at you and me in order for us to come into his presence in heaven. The only perfect man that has ever lived was Jesus Christ, who is also, and is also simultaneously God. And his law keeping is what is credited to the person who trusts in him to save him. But you won't have that law keeping and trust, uh, 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 imputed to you, credited to you, that God will see unless you have Jesus, you see. And oh, and by the way, you won't have the debt that you owe to God's divine justice paid off unless Jesus pays it. If he doesn't pay it, you will pay it. Do you want to spend eternity in indescribable agony and horror and and uh, emptiness? Stay on the path you're on. If you don't, flee to Christ. Last thing I want to point out in closing. Look at verse 11. So he goes through verse 9 and 10 and he gives that it says the, it's not made for the righteous man, but it's made for all these people, lawbreakers of the various commandments. And then he says in verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The, this passage teaches, and I already alluded to it a moment ago, that proclamation of the law is an essential part of preaching the gospel. It's essential. You see, the content of verses 8 through 11 is all one sentence in the original. And in most, uh, or at least in my, my Bible, 8 through 10, 8 through 11. So, he is, he is, he is, it, that's linking verse 11 with what precedes it. So, what Paul says about the law being made for those who are lawless and rebellious he says, is according to the gospel, the glorious gospel of our blessed God, of the blessed God. That's according. So his point is, they need to hear the law. It needs to be pressed upon them so that they will, uh, the fear of, fear the Lord. And go, oh my, I'm in trouble. Yeah, that's right, you are. Christ alone can save you from that horrific uh, uh, destiny which you would otherwise experience. Flee to Christ. Okay. But you see, you've got to have the law. You've got to have the bad news in order for the good news to sound good. Or to be good. You need a Savior because you're a sinner and you're headed to hell. 
where God himself is in his judgment and justice. The law is part of the gospel. It must be included in any gospel presentation that I give from this pulpit or that you folks give when you're talking to friends or acquaintances or neighbors or other family members who don't know Christ whom you're trying to share the gospel with. And if you know, for example, that they're engaging in some particular sin and you're aware of it, my suggestion would be to you is say, look, I know you are doing dot, dot, dot. You're going to have to give that up. That's not, how you, that's not how you get forgiven, but if you're going to be forgiven, you're going to have to give that up. You're going to have to turn away from that sin. God requires that you... That you Jesus is, is Savior and Lord. He must be your Lord. That is to say, you must serve him the way he intends to be served, and he's not going to be served by an adulterer or a liar or a fornicator or a Sabbath breaker or an idolater, at least somebody who's practicing all those things. He won't be served by such. So, I guess I made my point. We need to be careful in our presentation of the gospel to include appropriate uh, applications of the law to to the heart of the person with whom we are talking. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this instructive passage. They all are instructive, Lord, but thank you for instructing us in the way that you have from this passage. Lord, would you please help us to be careful and good users of your law and your word. Particularly, would you help us as we seek to um, share our faith, which we all are required to do. Would you first give us a desire to share our faith, a greater desire to, and, and courage to overcome fears and anxieties that we might have about doing that? And then, Lord, would you help us to know how to share the gospel in a way that is uh, appropriate and to include the application of the law to the heart of the person with whom we are talking? Lord, we need wisdom in how to do this. Different circumstances, different people require different approaches, different words, different uh, emphases. Would you please help us, though, to be good proclaimers of your truth? And would you please use us to bring lost souls to Christ who don't know you now, but who you intend to save? And Lord, if there's anybody listening to me right now, here in this room or um, remotely, who is unconverted, who has just been pretending to be a Christian, or maybe even never even pretended, but isn't a Christian, and has never bowed the knee to Jesus as Savior and Lord in faith, would you please give a new heart to such an individual that he or she might do that now? We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Amen.